Let's pray. Eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's easy for us to make our way through the day as if you are not the good and powerful God that you are. And so we thank you for the ways that your glory, your light shines forth through the darkness of the world and reminds us not only that you are present, but that you are active in the world. We thank you for birthdays to celebrate. We thank you for graduations that we get to celebrate together. We thank you for the ways that your grace is at work in our lives, making us holy, making us confident that we are your children, forgiving us of our sins, building in, up, in us the virtues of faith as you bear in us the fruit of your spirit. We pray, O oh Lord, that we could set our minds on these things, the ways that you are transforming our world and our own lives as we seek after you and as you pursue us wherever we are. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we see your glory and your grace, that we would not forget the pain that the world still experiences. We pray for all who are sick, especially for those who have cancer. We pray for all who grieve, especially for the Caldwell family. We pray for Traeger as he continues to heal from his surgery. We pray for all requests that remain unspoken today as well. You know what is on our hearts. You know our needs. You know our needs even before we ask, O oh Lord. And so we in faith entrust ourselves to you and to your goodness and power to do what you need in our lives today as we worship you. We pray for our congregation, Lord, and your church that spreads throughout the face of the earth. We pray for faithfulness. We pray for effectiveness in evangelism that we could be about the work of sharing your gospel to a world that needs hope and grace. We pray, Lord, that you would bless the leaders of the church to faithfully guide our congregation and all congregations towards fidelity in you. We pray that you bless all of the leaders throughout the world uh, that lead government agencies and everything else, that they might lead faithfully in a way that brings your peace and your justice to our world. We pray, Lord, that today our worship could give you glory. We pray that you would speak clearly to us through the word of your scripture, that you would teach us more about the goodness of your gospel that your grace would help us to believe not only that you are good, but that you are good to us and that your disposition is for us as you teach us what it means to fear you and to live faithfully according to your command. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. He who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So we've been working through the book of Ephesians. Uh, and last week, we, we started to look at this one verse and, and a little bit of a second verse in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, and uh, also uh, the beginning part of verse 8. And we talked about, does anybody remember, we talked about a word that starts with R and rhymes with shmedemption? Redemption. <laughs> I decided not to test you too much today. Last week, y'all got a little uncomfortable when I asked you questions. We talked about redemption, right? We talked about how in, when God redeems us, he, he frees us from captivity, from oppression. He wins us back from the things that are not our correct Lord and puts us in right relationship with him again. 
right? Uh, that's, the, that's the first word that, that Paul uses in this, this verse 7 of chapter 1. But then he uses the word forgiveness, which most of us have an idea of what forgiveness looks like. But I want to use an image of scripture for us today to help us lean in to what that word means as well. So in addition to reading the passage from Ephesians that we'll read in just a minute, we're going to read from the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. Um, and we're going to read a few verses here, but about the Day of Atonement. But before I read it, so we're only going to read a couple verses, but I want you to have a picture of, of what's going on here. So the Day of Atonement is the day, one day a year, that Israel seeks to atone for their sins and be reconciled to God, right? They try to be faithful throughout the year, but basically they're aware that by the, by the time 365 days have rolled around, they've probably alienated themselves from God again. And this is what the process looks like for them to re-engage relationship with God. So this is the day of Yom Kippur, and there are three animals that are always involved in the Day of Atonement. There's a bull, and there's two goats. And the high priest is the one who's responsible for offering the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. Uh, and the first high priest was Aaron, so in, in this it's going to talk about Aaron. Uh, and what Aaron is supposed to do. But Aaron takes the bull, and he, he sacrifices the bull, he takes the bull's life, and then he offers the bull's blood at the altar, at the, at the Ark of the Covenant, and on the mercy seat, and he's, he sprinkles the blood of the bull all around the Holy of Holies in the appropriate places for his own sin. So first he has to, he has to offer a sacrifice for his sin so that then he is forgiven so he can mediate on behalf of the people of God, on behalf of on behalf of Israel, to offer a sacrifice for them. Y'all tracking with me? So that's what, that's what the bull is for. And they take the two goats, and they cast lots over the goats. One goat will be offered as a, as, a, as a burnt offering to the Lord. It also will be killed, and its blood will be sprinkled over the mercy seat and everywhere else on behalf of Israel. And the other one, the one, the one that gets the better lot, is the scapegoat, Okay. And the scapegoat gets treated differently than this other goat. And we're going to read about uh, that today. So this is Leviticus chapter 16, verse 20. When the high priest has finished atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and sending it away in the wilderness by means of someone designated for the task. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a barren region, and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Verses 7 and 8. Hear this word. <clears throat> In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me and for me now? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, Almighty Father. For it is you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So on this, this day, the, the Day of Atonement, the, the most holy day of the year, really, for uh, the Israelite people, uh, you have the bull that is first sacrificed, and then the goat, and the goat that is sent away, the scapegoat. And one thing you need to know about these sacrifices is, is if you read all of Leviticus, the focus is not on the killing of the animal. The focus is on the offering before the Lord. All of the details are around what you do as you ritually offer the blood, which is the life of the animal, to the Lord. This is an act of offering a life to God as an act of reconciliation, as an act of restoring the relationship between the people of Israel and God, a bridge to God after their sin has separated them from God. This is a way that they get reconnected to God by the offering of the life of this animal. And this is a somewhat different analogy than what we talked about with redemption last week, as we talked about being freed from captivity and, and set free, liberated to live with Christ as our proper Lord. Um, but, but that also is, is very different from what happens with this second goat, right? And the second goat is for us a picture of what it looks like to be forgiven. So this goat, Aaron lays his hands on its head of this living goat, which if you've worked with goats, goats are not always like compliant, right? So we think of this as like a high, holy, sacred moment, and it is, but it also is going to be, you know, you've got this, this goat wiggling around as he prays and confesses over it, places on this goat all of the sins of Israel for the last year. He speaks over this goat, prays over this goat, and names every way that Israel has strayed from the commandments of God in the last year. How have they ignored God's law? How have they transgressed, crossed over beyond what God has given them permission to do? How have they disobeyed God's commands and failed to do the things that God has asked them to do? And he names all of this before all the people of Israel. And there's somebody designated to take the goat far enough away that it will never come back. That sins are placed on the goat, and the goat is led away into a barren wilderness where it is released, where it's set free, never to return to Israel. And this is a helpful image for us as we think about what it means for God to forgive us of our sins. As Paul speaks of redemption, what it means for us to be freed from the power of sin on the one hand, and forgiveness, what it looks like for us to be freed from the guilt and shame of sin. On the other hand, this word for forgiveness literally means to send away, to remit sin, is to put separation between us and our sin so that it's no longer associated with us. We're no longer identified by the guilt and the shame that we carry because Jesus has forgiven us for it. And what, what's as important as that definition today that I want you to hear is the rich mercy of God that is offered to us, that he lavishes over us. This is really generous language. And it's generous because Jesus's gift to us is incredibly generous. Uh, some Reformed theologians like to say, if your sin is small, then God's grace is small, and God's grace is certainly not small. So what does that teach us about our sin? Paul says it this way, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
We've all failed to do the things that God, the creator of the universe, the Lord of all of the cosmos, the king of glory has commanded us to do. And we've done the very things that God has commanded us not to do. We stand in need of forgiveness. Our sin is great, and therefore our need for grace is great. And God's grace is greater than our need. Uh, I was at a retreat several years ago, and there was a man there named John, um, who, who I got to the privilege of talking to a fair amount during the retreat. And John was a curiosity to me, because John could articulate faith in Jesus. He could say, I know that Jesus is Lord, I know that he died to forgive me of my sins, but I'm not a Christian. I said, what do you mean you're not a Christian? If you can say those things, by definition, you're a Christian. And as we talked about it more and more, what really had, had captured him and made him think he wasn't a Christian was that there was a pastor who had preached regularly to him and to others that if you die tonight, are you confident beyond a shadow of a doubt? Do you know that you know that you know you will be in heaven with the Lord? And if not, you might not be a Christian. This was the, the sermon he had heard all throughout his life. As we talked, as John and I talked, I, I, I taught him that what he was looking for is assurance, confidence that he is included in the work of Christ. But that's a different grace than forgiveness, right? So when we confess that Jesus is Lord, when we offer to God our lives, when we do this, Scripture is clear that Jesus forgives us and that we can trust that even if we don't always feel it. You've heard this about marriage, right? You, you love your spouse, even if you don't always feel like loving them. The same is true in the gospel, that these things are true regardless of what we feel at any given moment about our salvation. If we have entrusted ourselves to Christ, we can be sure that he will save us, that he is saving us, that he has saved us. So we need to be careful not to confuse our perception with reality. We can lean into the fact that Scripture teaches us that in Christ we can be forgiven of our sins. Uh, as, as Paul says it to, to Timothy, the saying is true and worthy of full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So if we're sinners, Christ Jesus has come into the world to save us. No matter how great or small we think our sin is, Christ's grace is sufficient for us. I'm actually going to read one more text today as we, as we hear about the grace of God and what it means to be forgiven. I'm going to read from Psalm 103. I'm going to read most of the psalm um, because the first part of it really captures for us what we talked about last week in redemption, and the second part of it really helps us imagine what it looks like for us to be forgiven. This is Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. The one who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good as long as you live, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. 
The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For he knows how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. As for mortals, their days are like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is how far God, when he forgives us, separates us from our sin, as far as the east is from the west. Your sin is not about to find its way back to you. God doesn't barely save us. God's not the sort of God who does just enough to barely let you get by. He saves us by the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. Sit in that for a minute. That God has gone over and above. He's, he's been superfluous. He's given way more than you need to save you. More than you need, but not more than God has to give. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how um, Paul says that we're adopted into God's family, right? That, that the gospel means that we are brought into the family of Jesus, that just as Jesus is the real legitimate son of God, we are brought in as children of God in line with Jesus by his grace. We haven't been adopted by just any dad. We've been adopted by a rich dad, amen? A rich dad has adopted us with storehouses full of grace, with cattle on a thousand hills, God offers us grace all the way down. There's a story about a, a, a European man who was traveling to, uh, to the East Indies, to India, and he, he met a person, was having a conversation with them and talking about how, how they had discovered that the world wasn't flat, it, it's round, it's a sphere. And the lady that he was talking to says, well, of course it is, it's a sphere that sits on the back of a turtle. And, and he's like, well, he thought he had her. He's like, this doesn't make any sense. What, what is the turtle standing on? And she said, well, of course, another turtle. It's turtles all the way down. Doesn't make any sense to us in the modern world, right? But it gives us a picture of the way that God's grace works. You can't ever get below it. It's grace all the way down. If you dug into it deeper and deeper and deeper, there's nothing bitter or ugly at the bottom of it. You can't exhaust the supply of it. You can't get to the bottom of it. It is grace all the way down. For several centuries, the church emphasized in, in the movement of scholasticism that God could do a lot with a little. And so we, in worship, we, we did things like use as little water as possible in baptism because just a little water was enough to save you. 
or just a little bit of bread at communion because you don't need that much of Jesus. Jesus is infinite. If you have a little bit of him, that's plenty sufficient. And it's true. God can do a lot with a little. But it turned out that the asking that question, how little can we get away with, doesn't embody for us the generosity of God. It makes God look stingy. You've been adopted by a rich father who wants to shower you with the abundance of his grace that could not be contained in all of the Pacific Ocean or in all of the infinite space of the multiverse. People who, who don't believe in Jesus, who, who don't have a life of faith, if you ask them what they thought about God and why they don't believe in God, I would bet that they don't say, well, I don't like that God is richly lavish with his grace. I bet that a lot of them have not heard about the deep, undeniable, unending goodness of our God. I wonder what it looks like for you to share that with other people. What does it look like for you to live in the forgiveness of God who has taken your sin and sent it as far away as the east is from the west from you, who has, who has richly lavished you with his grace? He's offered you more than you need. What does it look like for you to talk about that, God? I spoke a few minutes ago about how assurance and salvation are not necessarily the same thing, that, that grace can do its work in us to provide assurance, but if we don't have assurance, that doesn't mean that we've not been saved. But I want to lean in a little bit further with that. You might not always feel assurance of your forgiveness and I want you to hear today clearly that that's okay. And what I mean when I say it's okay is that having trouble believing that God's grace has been applied to you, that it's sufficient for you, that, that your faith is sufficient to be saved, doesn't mean that you haven't received God's grace. You might very well have. But not, not having that assurance is an uncomfortable place to be, right? If you're not sure that Christ has saved you, that's not a very comfortable place to be. And there's something that you can do about it. One thing that you can do is, is read the scriptures that will remind you of the abundance, overabundance of God's grace. And the other thing that you can do is to pray, not just for God's grace to forgive you, but also to assure you of that forgiveness. Say, God, your grace is abundant and plentiful, and I need an extra helping of your grace grace upon grace, so that I can know that I'm forgiven. So you can know with confidence that God has saved you from the guilt and power of your sin. That God truly has separated you as far as the east is from the west, from your guilt and shame. Because you're not going to get to the bottom of it. God's grace is deeper than you can go. There's nothing else lurking under the surface. It is grace all the way down. And that's what we get to celebrate as we join together at the table for communion today. This rite, this sharing of bread and of the fruit of the vine, reminds us of what Christ has done for us. We remember his death, his offering of his life as a sacrifice that redeems us, that reconciles us to God, and that forgives us. And we don't just remember it, we actually get to participate in it. This is one of the innumerable ways that God offers his grace to us. That in this sacrament, we are united 
to one another. We are united to God who has made us, who is redeeming us, and who has forgiven us. If you listen to the communion liturgy as we move through it today, you'll hear the images of these aspects of what it means for us to be saved. You'll hear about God delivering us from captivity. You'll hear about God forgiving us of our sins. You'll hear about redemption. You'll hear about how we're separated from our guilt. This is what we get to do now as we worship together. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your Son, Jesus Christ, you have redeemed us. You have liberated us from the power of sin and from anything else that might lord over us and drive our lives to the end that we might be yours and yours alone. So we might serve you as our Lord and our Master. We thank you that you have forgiven us. Whatever scars or marks of shame and guilt that our lives have borne because of the ways that we have gone astray, as you have brought us back into you, you have left our sin behind. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us assurance of the ways that you have forgiven us, of every sin, of sin that we committed decades and decades ago that we still feel guilty for, we offer that to you now. The sin that we committed this morning, we offer that to you now as well. Asking that by your grace you could raise us up in righteousness and confident that the saying is true and worthy of full acceptance. You've come to save sinners. And if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to cleanse us, to forgive us from all unrighteousness. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you now.